Good day, everyone. Welcome to the Memorial Heights Baptist Church podcast. Thank you so much for joining us as we open up and listen to God's Word together. Today's message is part nine in Pastor DJ Ritchie's Sunday morning series in Elijah. This message was given during our Sunday morning worship service on March 14th, 2021. If you have not yet subscribed, please do. And when you do, you will receive a notification each time we post a new message. And we'll always be up to date. We hope this encourages you in your relationship with Christ. And if it does, we would love to connect with you in person sometime. But for now, grab your Bible, open your ears, and let's get into it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you, God, for your mercy, for your grace. That, God, every good and perfect gift does come from you. And, Father, we waste so much of our time, so much of our life, chasing things to fill the void in our heart, God, that only you can fill. And so, God, as we come to your word today, may we be reminded of your great love for us, uh, your amazing grace for us that's been demonstrated for us forever on the cross of Calvary, the resurrection, the empty tomb, God, we uh, serve a living Savior today, and God, uh, He continues, Your Son continues to extend those hands of grace and love to us. And so, Father, may we be reminded uh, of Your heart as we come to Your Word, and uh, we ask this all in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, turn with me to 1 Kings 22, 1 Kings 22. It's easier to push someone down than to pick them up, unless they know judo, maybe, (laughs) then maybe it would be easier to pick them up than push them down, or some other form of martial arts. But you understand the principle, it's much easier, much more work to lift someone up than to try to push them down. There's a place not too far from here, some of you may have been there, I think it's called Gravity Hill. Anyone ever been to Gravity Hill? A few of you. Is it true that if you put your car in neutral on Gravity Hill, it will drift up? Is that true? Okay. Uh, quite a, a scientific anomaly. You go to this hill, you put your car in neutral, and your car will drift uphill. Gravity Hill. But I think most of us would agree that on virtually every other place in the world, if you're in your car on a hill and you shift from park to neutral, that your car is not going to drift up. It's going to drift down. The same is true of our hearts. The same is true of our lives. The same is true of our spiritual condition. It takes much more work to draw closer to the Lord than to drift away from the Lord because we're all born with a sin nature. And even those of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ for our forgiveness of sins, we've trusted in Him for our salvation, we've been given eternal life and forgiveness through faith in His death and His resurrection is the only and all-sufficient payment for our sins. Yet, nevertheless, we still have a sin nature that we wrestle with. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 7. We wrestle with that all the days of our life. It's not until we see Him, John says in 1 John 3, that we will be like Him because we'll see Him as He is. And so it takes much more effort much more planning, much more energy to move in a positive direction than in a negative one, spiritually speaking. It's been said that children are like wet cement. Everything 
that touches their lives leaves a lasting impression. Now that doesn't mean that we are slaves to our upbringing, that we don't have a choice as we become adults, that we have to fall in line with the negative upbringing that we had or the lack of upbringing that we had for those of us who lack that. It doesn't mean that any more than that good parenting will guarantee righteous living. We all have choices to make. God deals with all of us as individuals. Nevertheless, we're going to see this morning that when we leave a negative influence on someone's life, it can have lasting destructive effects. We've been looking at the God of Elijah, and for most of uh, the last eight, now nine weeks together, we've looked at Elijah's interactions with God, Elijah's interactions with King Ahab. Last week we saw the death of King Ahab, and we're going to conclude the series within the series this morning on the punishment of God as we look at the sons of Ahab. Really, one of his sons in particular, and his son-in-law. And the influence that Ahab and Jezebel had on his offspring. The legacy of evil. That even though Ahab had a, a moment in his life where he did humble himself before God, we we see that God Himself makes note of it to Elijah. Nevertheless, that did not, as we saw last week, mean that Ahab suddenly became a good moral person. He still struggled with evil. And it didn't mean that it automatically erased the decades of negative influence that he had on his son and on his daughter. And as we'll see today, Ahab left a tragic legacy behind him that had a detrimental impact not only on his own family, not only on the nation of Israel, but even on the family of righteous King Jehoshaphat and Judah as well. So important that we understand the power of influence, the responsibility of being a godly influence and of making godly choices. Again, not so that we can blame our parents for the decisions and mistakes that we have made, but that we understand that we can make things a lot easier for someone to make the right choice or a lot harder. So let's look this morning at the sons of Ahab and the son of Jehoshaphat as well. The sons of Ahab and Jehoshaphat. I want to talk to you today, first of all, about what happened right after the death of Ahab, the futile reign of his son Ahaziah. Now, if you remember a few weeks ago, we saw God command Elijah to anoint someone else to become king of Israel, and yet we're going to see that this prophecy is going to be delayed. There is a prophecy that has been fulfilled, but there's also a prophecy that has been delayed. Look here what happens in 1 Kings chapter 22. Let's pick it up in verse 39. The rest of the acts of Ahab, all that he did, the ivory house, the great, majestic, beautiful palace that he had built for himself that, guess what? He left behind when he died. 
which he made, and all the cities that he built, which other people ruled, that he left behind when he died, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So Ahab slept with his fathers, and Ahaziah his son reigned in his stead. We're going to see that all that he had invested in for the good, this incredible building and these cities that he had, that he had created, uh, all of that pales in comparison with the evil that he did when Ahaziah reigned in his stead. And verse 41, Jehoshaphat, the son of Asa, began to reign over Judah in the fourth year of Ahab, king of Israel. Jehoshaphat was 30 and five years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 20 and five years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Azubah, the daughter of Shilhai. And he walked in all the ways of Asa, his father. He turned not aside from it, doing that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away, for the people offered and burnt incense, yet in the high places... And Jehoshaphat made peace with the king of Israel. So this is a righteous man, but like all of us, he had some blind spots in his life, as we'll see this morning. And he, he had some areas that he, that he left undone, some things that needed to be fixed that he did not fix. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoshaphat, verse 45, and his might that he showed and how he warred, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah and the remnant of the Sodomites? which remained in the days of his father, Asa, he took out of the land. He dealt with the uh, plague of homosexuality that was uh, running rampant through Israel uh, in the days even of his righteous father. And he, he did do that, God commends him, for the stand that he took against sodomy. Verse 47, there was then no king in Edom, a deputy was king. Verse 48, Jehoshaphat made ships of Tarshish to go to Ophir for gold, but they went not, for the ships were broken at Ezion. We'll come back to that, uh, but let's jump down here into verse 51. Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel in Samaria, the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned all of two years over Israel. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. I believe this is the only time in the scriptures where we are told that a king walked in the way of his mother. Now, there are times when God commended the mothering of, of a woman. We see that in Timothy's life in the New Testament when God commended the ministry of uh, Timothy's mother and grandmother in influencing his life. But here we see that the influence of this mama's boy was so negative that even though this is the only time I believe this is mentioned in all the Bible, it's stressed the influence that not only Ahab had, but Jezebel had on his life as well. And he walked in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. For he served Baal and worshipped him and provoked to anger the Lord God of Israel according to all that his father had done. Now, we're going to look here in a few moments at Ahaziah and, and how his reign ends uh, we see now at the beginning that it was uh, two years of evil, two years of continued wickedness to amplify, to continue to magnify the sins of Ahab and the sins of Jezebel. But again, as we saw a few weeks ago, God had told Elijah to anoint someone else, to anoint someone named Jehu. And Elijah prophesied the death of Ahab. He prophesied that his family would lose the throne of Israel, and yet Ahab has died, and Jehab has not, Jehu excuse me, has not yet stepped on the scene. 
Part of the prophecy has been fulfilled. Some of it has been left unfulfilled. And so why the delay? Why the delay? Why is it that Jehu is not succeeding Ahab? If that's what God had declared. In fact, as if we were to continue this study into all the way into 2 Kings, throughout the chapters, and I think it's chapter 8 where Jehu becomes king, we're going, we find that it's actually 21 years after Mount Horeb, 21 years after God tells Elijah to go and anoint Jehu, that he actually becomes the king. In fact, he has to be anointed a second time, just as David was anointed by the prophet Samuel, but it wasn't, I think it was 16 years later that, that he became, 16 or 17 years later, that he actually became the king, and he was anointed again by the people of God as he actually began to reign. So also we see Jehu here as, as a, a younger person, probably a, a young man like David was, that Jehu was uh, first anointed by the prophet of God, but it was 21 years before God fulfilled that promise. And he had to be anointed a second time by the servant of Elisha uh, to publicly recognize the original anointing. So, so why did God wait? Why did God wait to fulfill that prophecy? Let me give you a couple of reasons I believe that God waited. It's not that God forgot. It's not that God wasn't able. It's not that uh, God changed his mind. But there were some things that God was doing in the interim. First of all, uh, it allowed an extension of God's grace in response to Ahab's humility. Look back at the end of chapter 21 again with me. 1 Kings chapter 21, we see that because of the death of Naboth, who was killed, of course, because of Jezebel's plan, she had a conspiracy to deceive people and she used the elders of the city to do it. She had this lie that they were going to concoct where they were going to frame Naboth for blasphemy. And so he was killed by his own countrymen who thought he had blasphemed God and the king. And so because of, uh, of Ahab's covetousness for his property, for his vineyard, this plan was executed and God was so outraged by that covetousness and that murder that he told uh, Ahab uh, this in verse 21, Behold, I will bring evil upon thee and will take away thy posterity and will cut off from Ahab him that pisseth against the wall and him that is shut up and left in Israel and will make thine house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of the Bod, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, for the provocation wherewith thou hast provoked me to anger and made Israel to sin. And he also made a prophet, a prophecy concerning the death of Jezebel as well. But notice, remember what we saw a few weeks ago, verse 27, it came to pass when Ahab heard those words that he rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went softly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the, Tish, Elijah the Tishbite saying, Seest thou how Ahab humbleth himself before me? Because he humbleth himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days, but in his son's days will I bring the evil upon his house. We see this same extension of grace in the book of Jonah. When Jonah is sent to Nineveh to preach God's destruction on the city because of their sin, when the city actually repents, God postpones the destruction of the city. He doesn't cancel it, 
The city is still eventually destroyed in fulfillment of God's judgment in Jonah's prophecy. But nevertheless, God, because of their repentance, He extends a period of grace in response to that humility. And so this delay of the prophecy is a chance for God to extend grace. God is full of grace and mercy. And whatever sin you have committed, whatever sin you are carrying with you today on your shoulders or hiding away in your heart, God has grace for you if you will receive it. But see, you have to repent of that sin. You have to ask His forgiveness. If you're someone here today or watching today who's never trusted in Christ as your Savior, you need to admit that you're a sinner. You need to admit that you are under eternal condemnation because of your sin before a righteous and holy God. And you can't work off your sin debt. You can't uh, pay off your sin debt. The only thing that you can do is confess your sin and accept the payment that He has made for you when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the perfect Son of God, the sinless sacrifice died on a cross for your sin in your place and shed His blood to pay for your sin. And He washed away your sin if you will receive it, if you will receive His grace. You can be forgiven of your sin if you trust in His death and His resurrection. But for those of us who have made that decision, we, we are believers. We still sin. And we fall under the discipline of God our Father. And we also, at times in our life, as Jesus said to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, that we need to repent. That we need to repent and do the first things. We need to repent and go back to our first love. We need to deal with the sin within our hearts. And God has extended grace to Ahab, and God extends His grace to us as well. It also, though, this delay also allowed an examination an examination of Elijah's faith. Remember when God made this prophecy, it was on Mount Horeb. And why was Elijah on Mount Horeb? Because of a lack of faith. Because he had stumbled in his trust in God. He had had this incredible mountaintop experience on Mount Carmel when he stood against the 450 prophets of Baal. And God had sent fire down from heaven and then God had sent torrential rain after three and a half years of famine in response to his prayers, and yet the very next morning when Jezebel sent out a decree that, he, that she was going to kill Elijah, that, that Elijah was going to still be hunted, Elijah got discouraged, he got depressed, and he ran. Now he ran to God, he ran to the right place, and when we get discouraged, when we get depressed, we need to make sure that we're running to the right place, that we're running to God. Nevertheless, that's why he was there, it was because he was weak in his faith. And so God made him a prophecy. He gave him a mission. I want you to go anoint these three people, one of them being the next, uh, not the next king, but the future king of Israel, Jehu, the next prophet, Elisha, who's going to carry your mantle. And this delay allowed for an examination of Elijah's faith. We have to remember that God works on his timetable, not ours. We studied this in the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 1. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. Whatever season of life you are in, whatever time of life, whatever circumstances, God has a purpose. God has something that He wants to bring out of that. And as Joseph said to his brothers, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. 
And whatever evil is done around us, whatever evil is done to us, whatever evil we have done that God has allowed, that we can be forgiven of, that we can be restored in our relationship to God. God has a purpose for what He allows. He has a purpose for what He brings into our life. And so the question I need to ask myself, and I would challenge you to ask yourself as well this morning, will I trust God to keep His Word even when the circumstances of my life appear to contradict His Word? Will I trust that God will fulfill His promises even when it seems like God is not keeping His promise? Even when the promise has been delayed? Will I trust God to keep His Word? We see Elijah, we'll see here in a moment, actually passed this test. The time on Horeb strengthened his face. His time of reconnecting with God after his great failure. God restores him to ministry and God uses him powerfully for the rest of his life. And Elijah has a stronger faith. And Elijah's faith doesn't waver the way that it did after Mount Carmel. After the death of Ahab. So this delay allowed an extension of God's grace to Ahab. It allowed an examination of Elijah's faith And also notice it allowed a preparation for Jehu and for Jehu's calling. Now, again, as I said, Jehu was almost certainly, like King David, was almost certainly very young when Elijah anointed him, just as David was young when Samuel anointed him. Jehu must have been very young when Elijah first anointed him. And there was a long period between the time that David was anointed and when he became king. And there's a long period between the time that Jehu was anointed and the time that Jehu becomes king. And what is God doing in that time period? He is allowing Jehu to get prepared for the mission that he has called him to. David wasn't ready for all the challenges that he was going to face. God had to teach him some things. And the same is true of Jehu. Jehu has some skills in leadership that he needs to learn. He has some warfare skills that he needs to learn. He needs to learn how to be a warrior because uh, the king, being the king of Israel in that day and dealing with the wickedness of the house of Ahab was going to require somebody who was hardened, battle-hardened, somebody who had a stomach to do what needed to be done. And that had to be developed as part of Jehu's calling. Remember what Ecclesiastes 10.10 says, If the iron be blunt... And he do not wet the edge, then must he put to more strength, but wisdom is profitable to direct. Solomon said, sharpen your axe. Make sure that you are preparing for whatever it is. God is preparing you for something. I don't know what is ahead for you. I don't know what is ahead for me. Jehu had an idea when he was anointed, although we see in Jehu's story, if we had time to go there, that that he had his own doubts, that he was really going, even though God anointed him twice, that he was actually going to become the king. But nevertheless, God was preparing him, and he was, even without realizing, he was preparing himself. So for what might God be preparing me? For what might God be preparing you? And how am I preparing, or how should I be preparing 
It's a question that we should all be asking ourselves. God, what are you preparing me for? What is, what is coming? What is it that I need to learn? What is it that I need to do? When I first sensed God might be calling me to preach, I didn't want to be a pastor. I didn't like to stand up in front of people. I used to get scared to even pray in front of people. That's why I hated going to youth group on Wednesday nights. Because when I was in youth group, we'd, uh, every Wednesday night we'd all get in a big circle and we'd hold hands and we'd take turns in praying. If you didn't want to pray, you didn't have to. You could just squeeze the person next to you and it was their turn. But see, I was the pastor's kid. So I knew everybody expected me to pray. And I, and I used to get so nervous because I would forget the prayer requests and, I'd forget, and I was so, oh, they're, they're going to be upset because I forgot their prayer. And I, and I just go so focused on me rather than focused on God. And I had to learn how to talk in front of people, how to be in front of people, how to, uh, uh, to teach. All things that had to be learned. Things that I'm still learning how to do. So God is always preparing us for something. How are we preparing? James chapter 5 says, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. James says, I know, what you're, I know you're, you're impatient. I know you're waiting for what's coming, but you need to wait for that thing like a farmer waits. For the harvest, working while we're waiting. Not just sitting back and doing nothing, but looking for how we can be in God's Word, how we can learn a skill that we think God might want us to, to use, uh, how we can strengthen a relationship. Well, I don't know how God is going to be preparing you, but we need to ask Him, God, what are you preparing me for? How, how do you want me to better prepare for what is coming ahead. And even though we may not know it, even though we may not be completely ready, God is preparing. He wants to prepare you, and He was preparing Jehu as well. Notice also one other reason that God delayed His prophecy being fulfilled. It was an extension of God's grace. It was a test of Elijah's character is faith it was a preparation for Jehu's calling but it was also a revelation of Ahaziah's character Ahaziah is the son of Ahab who is going to first take the throne for two years God before God judged Ahaziah God revealed Ahaziah and this time period gave time to show why God was not just stripping the throne from Ahab but from Ahab's family as well now remember that God does tell us the consequences of our sin extend generationally. We see that in the Old Covenant. Exodus chapter 20 says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. This is from the Ten Commandments. Verse 5 says, Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Exodus 34, 7 says, Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. 
The consequences of sin can extend generationally for generations. That's true. That's just fact. Some of you have experienced that. The sins of our father, the sins of our grandfather, and even here to the fourth generation, the sins of our great-grandfather can have impact on us. Nevertheless, Deuteronomy 24.16 says, The fathers shall not be put to death for the children, neither shall the children be put to death for the fathers. Every man shall be put to death for his own sin. See, the consequences of my sin will extend and can extend generationally, but that doesn't mean that my son is going to be held accountable for my sin. I'm accountable for my sin. He's accountable for his sin. Now, he has to deal with consequences that I bring upon him if I, would, if I were to do that. But he's going to have to give an account for himself. We can't just blame our parents. We can't just blame our grandparents. We can't just blame our ancestors. We are held accountable for our own choices, for our own sins. And this, the same is true here for Ahaziah. And yes, Ahaziah is dealing with the consequences of his parents, but nevertheless, God will hold him accountable for his character, for his sin. And so I have to repeatedly ask myself, am I repenting of my own sin? I've told you before, it's much easier to repent of other people's sins than of our own. It's much easier to repent of ancestral sin than of our own. By the way, you say, well, how much responsibility should we have for our ancestors? Well, God says the consequences that he, hold, that he holds us, the, the, the effects of sin can go down to the fourth generation. Beyond that, I'm not really worried about what my great-great-grandfather did or my great-great-great-grandfather might have done. That's way beyond what God is concerned with in the terms of the consequences of sin. But I am responsible for my own choices. I need to ask God, okay, where do I need to repent of my sin? Not of your sin, not of my ancestors' sin, but of my sin. But am I repenting or am I trying to ignore it? Feel the convicting of the Holy Spirit? I'll deal with that tomorrow. We'll talk about that, God, but just not right now, okay? I want to get through this message. We'll deal with that later. Or am I justifying it? Well, God, here's why it was okay. You know, this is how you made me. <laughs> or, it's my, again, it's my parents' fault. This is how I was raised. I can't help how I was raised. We are all held responsible for our own sin. Paul speaking on Mars Hill in Acts 17.30, the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. In fact, Paul says in uh, Acts 26.18, this was God's mission that God gave him on the Damascus Road, that God's mission to Paul was this, to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Jesus, this is Jesus speaking. He's Paul, this, is your, this is your mission. You need to talk about people's sin. You need to talk about forgiveness. Need to get people to deal with their sin, confront their sin, but we want to ignore it and justify it. Ahaziah is going to find out that he can't ignore his sin for long. He can't justify his sin.
forever. And so let's talk here, before we go to 2 Kings, let's talk just for a moment about the faithful alliance that Ahaziah convinced his sister's father-in-law to make. Look again at 1 Kings chapter 22. We'll pick it up here in... Verse 48, Jehoshaphat made ships of Tarshish to go, for, to go to Ophir for gold, but they went not, for the ships were broken at Ezion-Geber. Then sent Ahaziah the son of Ahab unto Jehoshaphat, let my servants go with thy servants in the ships, but Jehoshaphat would not. Now, there, this is just really a, a brief mention. We get a little bit more information uh, on this story in Second Chronicles, and so I'm going to jump over to Second Chronicles uh, chapter 20. Just for a moment, Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 35. After this, did Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, join himself with Ahaziah, king of Israel, who did very wickedly. And he joined himself with him to make ships to go to Tarshish. And they made the ships in Ezion-Geber. Then Eliezer, the son of Dodava of Mar-Eshha, prophesied against Jehoshaphat, saying, Because thou hast joined thyself with Ahaziah, the Lord hath broken thy works. And the ships have, were broken that they were not able to go to Tarshish. And so if we put those two stories together, here's what happens. Jehoshaphat gets, gets sucked into this mercantile alliance with the king of Israel, who just happens to be his, daughter's, his daughter-in-law's brother. Even though Ahaziah was just as wicked as his father, even though the last time Jehoshaphat is aligned with the house of Ahab, it almost killed him, nevertheless... Jehoshaphat makes this alliance and God sends a prophet to him and he says, uh, you're making a big mistake and I'm going to make sure you don't keep this alliance. So I'm going to send some type of storm or something happened where these ships, before they could even leave the harbor, were completely wrecked and completely destroyed. See, Jehoshaphat loved God. He did. We've, We've seen that in the account of Scripture, but he lacked discernment especially regarding his family. Oh, how family can be a blind spot in our lives. Blood is thicker than water. And the the sins of our children and grandchildren can be so easily justified in our minds. Even those of us who love God, we often lack discernment regarding our own family. And it leads us to make some very foolish choices if we're not careful, just like Jehoshaphat, who should have learned when it almost killed him, literally, not to ally with the house of Ahab. Now, let me give you three takeaways from this brief account that's given to us in these passages of Scripture. Number one, make sure that you are pursuing wisdom. You are not going to fall out of bed into wisdom. You're going to have to pursue it. You're going to have to invest time into pursuing it. Because all of us have blind spots. Maybe your family isn't a blind spot, but all of us have blind spots. All of us have, even when we love God, we have areas in our life that we're just blind to. We lack discernment in those areas. And so we have to constantly be making sure that we're pursuing God's wisdom. Proverbs 4, 4 verse 5 says, Get wisdom, get understanding, forget it not. 
neither decline from the words of my mouth. Forsake her not, and she shall preserve thee. Love her, and she shall keep thee. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom, and with all thy getting, get understanding. Solomon says, it's not just going to fall on you. You're going to have to get it. You're going to have to search for it. You're going to have to seek it. And then you're going to have to guard it to make sure you don't lose it. Proverbs 15.22, Without counsel, purposes are disappointed, but in the multitude of counselors, they are established. Proverbs 16.16, How much better is it to get wisdom than gold and to get understanding rather to be chosen than silver? James chapter 1 says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. God wants to give you wisdom, but you just need to make sure that you're asking without wavering and that you're believing that God will give you wisdom. So here's what we see. If I'm studying God's word, seeking wisdom, and if I'm asking God for wisdom, and if I'm seeking counsel, that's going to guard me from those blind spots that I have, that each of us have. So we need to make sure that, like Jehoshaphat, when we do make a mistake, we learn from it. Because 1 Kings 22 tells us that after the ships were destroyed, when Ahaziah wanted to get back in on this mercantile, mercantile alliance, Jehoshaphat said, yeah, I'm, do- I'm done. I'm good. I lost enough in that. God told me it was wrong. Yeah, I know we could make a lot of gold together, but you know what? There's things that are better than gold. Don't let wealth or family lure you into compromise. Pursue wisdom and then guard yourself against this. We all, there's nothing wrong with having wealth. There's nothing wrong with making more money or, or taking that promotion or, unless it's going to draw you into compromise. And wealth is a, is a, a bait that God will put on, that, uh, that God will allow Satan to put on, on Satan's hook. And God is going to allow Satan to tempt you with family. God's not going to isolate you and, and keep you from all temptation. That's not how this works. So we have to guard our hearts by His power. And watch out for wealth. Watch out for family. It's so easy to be drawn into compromise. Remember Ecclesiastes chapter 5, He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with increase. This also is a breath. It's, it's fleeting. Verse 11, When goods increase, they are increased that eat them. And what good is there to the owners thereof, saving the beholding of them? with their eyes. Proverbs 23.4 Labor not to be rich. Cease from thine own wisdom. When we make getting more the priority, we lose our wisdom. We put up a big gold-plated blind spot in our life and we just have to be so guarded against that. And then uh, as we finish off this particular section, don't attempt to rebuild what God has wrecked. Jehoshaphat made a wise choice there. Ahaziah did not. God wrecked the ships. Ahaziah said, we'll just build more ships. Jehoshaphat said, yeah, I'm going to learn my lesson. So when God wrecks something, don't don't try to rebuild it. Don't try to put it back together. Proverbs 29, 1 he that being often reproved hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. Ecclesiastes 7.13 Consider the work of God for who can make that straight which he hath made crooked. Sometimes 
God wants us to keep trying. But other times, the reason that God shuts the door is because he's trying to protect you from what's on the other side of it. And he wants you to find another door. He doesn't want you to look for a window. He wants you to find your door. It's not your door. I saw, I saw this on um, uh, social media the other day whenever I was preparing this message. And I thought, boy, that was timely. What a great, what a great visual. The door is shut because God's protecting you from what's on the other side. The door, God locked it on purpose. He's trying to protect you. That's why God destroyed Jehoshaphat's ships. Sometimes that's why some of our plans go awry because God is protecting us from what lies ahead. Learn from the fateful alliance of Ahaziah and Jehoshaphat. Now, let's look at 2 Kings chapter 1 here. And this will be the... Well, there's two more passages that we're going to spend a little bit of time in, but let's look here at 2 Kings chapter 1. Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab, and Ahaziah fell down through a lattice in his upper chamber that was in Samaria and was sick. And he sent messengers and said unto them, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover of this disease. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say unto them, Is it not because there is not a god in Israel that ye go to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord, thou shalt not come down from that bed on which thou art gone up, but shalt surely die. And Elijah departed. And when the messengers turned back unto him, he said unto them, Why are you now turned back? And they said unto him, There came a man up to meet us and said unto us, Go turn again unto the king that sent you and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Is it not because there is not a God in Israel that thou sendest to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore, Thou shalt not come down from that bed on which thou art gone up, but shalt surely die. Now let's stop there for a moment. Let's talk about this fatal fall of Ahaziah. This is a literal and spiritual fall that leads from injury to tragedy. What starts as an injury, God getting his attention, turns into tragedy. So Ahaziah, he falls through the lattice, he has this accident in his palace, something happens, he falls, he's severely injured, and instead of asking God, instead of seeking God, sometimes even when God brings tragedy into our life, we don't seek Him. Sometimes even when God allows pain into our life, we don't seek Him. Let's make sure that when things do happen, it doesn't harden us against Him, but it draws us towards him. See, Ahaziah sends to a Philistine city. And there's a little play on words here that uh, God does for us. The angel of the Lord calls the God of Ekron, Beelzebub. That's not what the Philistines called him. The Philistines called him the Lord of glory. The Lord of glory, Beelzebul. But notice how God changes the end of that name by one letter. From Lord of Glory to Lord of the Flies. Where do flies congregate? Where do flies congregate? You know. Lord of the Flies. This is what God thinks of the gods of the pagans. This is all they're good for. And so the lesson here is don't ignore the Lord. 
Whatever God is bringing into your life, don't ignore Him. Don't turn from Him. Because whatever Lord of glory you're seeking other than the true Lord of glory will turn out to be Lord of the flies. It will turn out to be refuse. It will turn out to be waste. We see from this interaction with the messengers that Ahaziah clearly knew who Elijah was. He was familiar with all the events that had happened during his father's reign. He knew about Mount Carmel. He knew about the famine that was due to the drought and the rain that came as a result of Elijah's prayer. He knew about Elijah's encounter with his dad that led to his temporary humility, his humbling himself before God. He knew about all that, and yet he didn't learn anything from his father's good choices only from his father's bad choices. And it's a reminder that those of us who reject God's grace, even when it's extended to us, for two years after his father's death, he had time to repent. For two years, and he didn't take it. And even here at the end of his life, he doesn't take it. Those who reject God's grace tragically receive his wrath. He that believes is not condemned, Jesus said in John chapter 3, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. See, it's not grace now or grace later. It's grace now or grace never. And I don't know how long now is for you. Now might be one day. Now might be one year. Now might be another decade. I don't know. But now is not forever. There is a forever coming though. And it's a forever that we experience God's grace because we receive it by faith in Jesus Christ or we reject it. And if we reject God's payment for, his, for, for sins, if we reject Jesus absorbing the wrath of God on our behalf, then we fall under the wrath of God. And so we see that Ahaziah is now going to die because of his choice. Not his father's choice, but because of his sin. Notice, though, the foolish demands of Ahaziah and his captains. This is a, a, a strange story, but also, I have to admit, a little bit of a cool story, as tragic as it is. He finds out what manner this, this guy, verse 8, Elijah, he's a hairy man, girt with a girdle of leather about his loins. He said, oh, that's Elijah the Tishbite. I know who he is. And so the king sent unto him a captain of 50 with his 50. And he went up to him, and behold, he sat on top of a hill. And he spake unto him, Thou man of God, the king has said, Come down. And Elijah answered and said to the captain of 50, If I be a man of God, then, I let, then let fire come down from heaven and consume thee and thy 50. And there came down fire from heaven and consumed him and his 50. So the king repented. No, the king sent another captain of 50. Somebody has said that the definition of stupidity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. Why do we do that? Because of our sin, sinful pride. It didn't work last time, but boy, if I can, do, I can get it to do this time. Verse 11, he sent unto him another captain of 50 with his 50, and he answered and sent unto him, O man of God, thus hath the king said, come down quickly. And Elijah answered and sent unto him, if I be a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume thee and thy fifty. And the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. And he sent again a captain of fifty, a third time. You know, he could have sent those messengers who already talked to Elijah back to Elijah. Instead of sending messengers, he sends his military. 
He's got a powerful army. He's a king. I'll make the prophet of God listen. But see, Elijah stood in the presence of God, remember? Elijah wasn't afraid of men. And so, notice it wasn't just the king who suffered. It was those who were, quote, just following orders. Friend, be careful of just following orders. It cost 102 men their lives from the wrath of God because they were following the wicked orders of a wicked man. And where did that protection come from? Was it was because Elijah had some kind of superpower? Was he, was he a mutant? Could he call fire? To, no. Look here at the fiery protector of Elijah. Look as we continue to read on this third man. This third captain, uh, verse 13, went up. He came, he fell on his knees before Elijah. He besought him and said unto him, O man of God, I pray thee, let my life and the life of these fifty thy servants be precious in thy sight. Behold, there came fire down from heaven and burn up the two captains of the former fifties with their fifties. Therefore, let my life now be precious in thy sight. And the angel of the Lord said unto Elijah, Go down with him, be not afraid of him. And he arose and he went down with him unto the king. The fiery protector of Elijah is none other than God himself, the angel of the Lord. And what does the angel of the Lord do? He protects God's servant, but he also offers grace to the humble. Friend, trust in God's grace for the humble. Trust in God's grace the way that this captain did, the way that this military officer. He didn't trust in his, in his soldiers. He didn't trust in his rank. He certainly just didn't trust in his king. He was wise enough to learn from the mistakes of those who had gone before him. Oh, that we would learn from others' mistakes so that we don't repeat them. Trust in God's grace. Those who seek mercy will receive it. Proverbs 3.34 says, Surely he scorneth the scorners, but he giveth grace unto the lowly. If you want to try to mock God, if you want to try to scorn God, you will receive like in turn. And God will scoff at you. And God will bring things into your life to mock at you. Nevertheless, He extends mercy and grace. And if we will humble ourselves, He will forgive us and He'll restore us. And we see the mercy and grace of the humble. But then we also need to remember to trust in God's protection of the godly. Trust God to protect His own. Psalm 84.11 says, Jehovah Elohim is a sun and shield. Jehovah gives grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from him who walks uprightly. Elijah wasn't trusting in the place for his protection. He was trusting in the person of God. He knew that the hedge of protection that God had placed around him on that mountain, on that hillside, was going to follow him into the king's presence. And so the angel of the Lord said, it's time to go. I will protect you. And so he followed. You want to stay out of the storm? You stay in the eye of the storm. That's the center of God's will. And whatever is going on around us, if we're in the center of God's will, he will bring protection. Now, sometimes that protection comes through death as it did in the Apostle Paul. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 18. When God's deliverance for Paul at that time was through death into the eternal presence and protection of God. That's the hope that we need to keep in our hearts. Regardless of, Jesus said, don't fear those who can only kill your body. Fear the Lord. 
So we trust in His protection, His eternal protection for us. Just as God stood with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire, just as God stood with Daniel in the lion's den, God will stand with you. Make sure you are standing with Him. Trust in God's protection. And so Ahaziah dies. Now as we close, I want you to go with me to one more chapter, and that's 2 Chronicles chapter 21. 2 Chronicles chapter 21 as we finish looking at the sons of Ahab and now look at his son-in-law. The son of an otherwise righteous king who had a very big blind spot when it came to his family. Look at what God says, 2 Chronicles chapter 1. Verse 1, Jehoshaphat slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And Jehoram his son reigned in his stead, the son-in-law of Ahab. And he had brethren, the sons of Jehoshaphat, Azariah and Jehiel and Zechariah and Azariah and Michael and uh, Shephaniah. And all were the sons of Jehoshaphat, king of Israel, seven sons of the king. And their father gave them great gifts of silver and of gold and of precious things with the fenced cities in Judah. But the kingdom he gave to Jehoram because he was the firstborn. Now when Jehoram was risen up to the kingdom of his father, he strengthened himself and slew all his brethren with the sword. And divers also of the princes of Israel. Jehoram was 30 and 2 years old when he began to reign and he reigned 8 years. In Jerusalem, and he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, like as did the house of Ahab, for he had to daughter, for he had the daughter of Ahab to wife, and he wrought that which was evil in the eyes of the Lord. See, Jehoshaphat again, we see the blindness that he had of his own family, his own children. And he thought, you know what? Well, I, I'm gonna name my first wife. I think he'll do a good job. I know he's married to this girl, and I'm not real sure about her character, but I know he's going to do a good job, and he's the firstborn, and I'm just going to, I'm going to give the kingdom to him. And, and, you know, these other six brothers, I'm going to make sure they get taken care of too. I want to make sure that they get blessed. I've got all this wealth and all this gold. And this moment the dad is dead, and he, he becomes the next king, he looks at all that gold that his brothers got, and he said, that should have been mine. It, it all should have been mine. And I'm, not going, to make, I'm going to make sure... Did I get that back? I'm going to make sure that nobody can take my throne from me. And so he killed his own family. And God makes sure we know it was because of the influence of Ahab's daughter. The blindness that he had, that Jehoshaphat had, regarding his family, came back in the ferocious rise of Jehoram. But look, also at the foul demise of Jehoram. You say, why are we talking about Jehoram? Isn't this about the God of Elijah? Well, notice Elijah shows up here in 2 Chronicles, in this one chapter. 2 Chronicles chapter 21, beginning in verse 12. And there came a writing to him from Elijah the prophet, saying, Thus saith the Lord God of David thy father, because thou hast not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat thy father, nor in the ways of Asa king of Judah, but hast walked in the way of the king of Israel. Listen, I don't care how godly your father is or your grandfather. You have to make your own decisions. And God will hold you accountable for your choices. It doesn't matter that I'm a pastor 
my, it doesn't matter a bit when, with my son's choices. He's going to be held accountable, regardless of the fact that whether his daddy is a pastor and his grandfather a pastor, he's still going to have to make his own choices, and you do too. And so God says, you must walk in the ways of the king of Israel. You have made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to go a-whoring like to the whoredoms of the house of Ahab, and has also slain thy brethren of thy father's house, which were better than thyself. Behold, with a great plague will the Lord smite thy people, and thy children, and thy wives, and all thy goods, and thou shalt have great sickness by disease of thy bowels, until thy bowels fall out by reason of the sickness day by day. You want to trust in the Lord of the Flies? Where do flies congregate? How is this wicked king, Jehoram, going to die? In one of the most foul, disgusting deaths in all of the Bible. Moreover, the Lord stirred up against Jehoram the spirit of the Philistines and of the Arabians and were near the Ethiopians. And they came up into, Jeru- into Judah and break into it and carried away all the substance that was found in the king's house and his sons also and his wives so that there was never a son left him save Jehoaz, the youngest of his sons. And after all this, the Lord smote him in his bowels with an incurable disease. And it came to pass and in the process of time after the end of two years... His bowels fell out by reason of his sickness, so he died of sore diseases, and his people made no burnings for him like the burning of his fathers. Thirty and two years old was he when he began to reign. He reigned in Jerusalem eight years and departed without being desired. Howbeit, they buried him in the city of David, but not in the sepulcher of the kings. Be sure your sin will find you out. I don't need to get too descriptive about the death here. You've read it yourself. You've read it yourself. An incredibly foul demise. But listen, it's a warning of what hell is going to be like. It's a visual representation. Jesus said, Weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth where the worm never dies, outer darkness. A place of horrible torment. Jesus made a way so that you don't have to go there. Jesus paid the price so that you don't have to go there. But when we would rather cling to our sin, even after the judgment, no repentance. And I I know people, God has brought things into their life, God has allowed the consequences of their sin to fall on them, still no repentance. And friend, if they don't know Jesus Christ, I can't look inside anybody's heart, but the Holy Spirit knows your heart. What an incredible, disgusting visual warning for anyone who's not trusting in Jesus Christ. Listen, hell is a horrible place. You say, that's the Old Testament. Well, listen as we close to Revelation chapter 21. And He sat upon the throne. He that sat upon the throne, that's Jesus, said, Behold, I make all things new. And He said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And He said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto Him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. It's free. Grace is free. Eternal life is free. You can't purchase it. You can only receive it by God's grace. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful, 
and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, in case you thought you were getting off, shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Friend, God loves you. He loves you so much He sent Jesus Christ to die for you to pay your sin debt. He raised Him from the dead. He offers you forgiveness of sins, eternal life and hope in Him. But you have to receive Him. Why don't you stand as we close together? Bow your head and close your eyes as we prepare for our invitation. I don't know what your need is today. If there's somebody, though, who is here today, somebody who's watching, you've never trusted in Christ. You're trusting in your good works. You're trusting in your baptism. You're trusting in your parents' faith. Father, I pray that your spirit would show them their need for Jesus and the grace he freely extends them and they would receive Jesus Christ today as their Savior. Father, for those of us who know him, Father, may we be reminded of what you have saved us from and how you have saved us. God, that we would make wise choices, that we would seek wisdom, that we would live in obedience to you, trusting you for our protection in our eternity. We love and thank you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that wraps up today's message. We hope this has made an impact on your life and encourages you to follow and reflect Jesus daily. If it has, please give us a five-star rating on whatever platform you listen on and share it with a friend so others might be encouraged as well. If you have never accepted Christ as your Savior and would like to know how, Join us on Sunday mornings at 10.30, Sunday nights at 7 o'clock, Wednesday nights at 6.45, or give one of our pastors a call at 301-724-5876. We would love to hear from you. We hope to see you soon, and until next time, stay faithful.